Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today, uh, I'm going to be posting up something a little bit different. So I, at my church, I've been put in charge of my the Bible study and apologetics program. And um, obviously, uh, I can't record, I can't record um, those just for privacy concerns. Obviously, I don't want to discourage people who might want to participate or ask questions and wouldn't be right for me to record them uh, and then post that on my podcast without their permission and that sort of thing. But I do feel that there's value in in recording and posting up my Bible studies on the podcast. They're sh nice short shows. I'm doing my best to make it very popular level. Um, although I, I heard that I was still talking, you know, I, I, if you guys are fans of my podcast, you know that I'm, I usually talk above people and this is um a failing as of mine as a teacher, I, I really need to work and I've been trying to work on at least having the capability of teaching on a, on a understandable popular level. And I thought with my Bible study, I'd done that. Um, it wasn't totally perfect, so I still have room for improvement. But I think I've done that compared to the rest of my shows, my regular shows, um, where you know I'm, I'm presenting the best I've got kind of thing. And I want to do my best. I do want to elevate the thing that we all Christian apologists talk on a popular level. Well, we need some more in-depth studies as well. So, you know, I, I feel that's mainly what I'm doing on the thing. Um, but as a teacher, I should also have the ability to teach on a truly popular level if I want to. And I don't have that total ability yet. So I want to work on that. And, you know, uh, for people in, in the Bible study, um, you know, if something goes over the head, well, okay, they can, I can give them the link to my podcast. They can go back and re-listen and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, the two serve two uh, two kills two birds with one stone there um, type deal. So yeah, hopefully you guys will enjoy it. And uh, it's going to be a nice short show, probably without any room for questioning, probably be half an hour or something like that. So yeah. Um, so in my Bible study, I'm going to be do looking at the evidence the series on the resurrection, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It's going to cover the historical, biblical, archaeological, and scientific evidences um, for the resurrection. And I'm going to be presenting my case um, in about you know eight to ten um, lectures or Bible study sessions done once a month. Um, at my church, um, and then I'll record afterwards uh, just by myself for, for you guys on the podcast and for them if they want to go back and re-listen. Okay, so the evidence for the resurrection, boom. So the first thing here is obviously some Christians are wary about using reason and evidence versus faith. You know, we should just have faith in Jesus' resurrection. You can see here I have asked I ask a couple questions that doesn't make sense in a podcast terms when nobody's interacting, but um, I just ask questions. But basically, I give the answers, right? So look, the Bible doesn't tell us to have blind faith. It doesn't go for fideism. It teaches us to have an evidence-based faith, where the word faith means trust in the Greek, right? So I, the evidence provides me with this objective evidence warranting this conclusion, and I have faith. I trust the evidence and i trust that god is god is real on that basis i trust that god will fulfill his promises and will raise me from the dead even though i have no evidence for that and stuff like that so it's an evidence-based trust the second issue is well what's the role of the holy spirit and as you guys on the podcast will know obviously there is um inner witness of the holy spirit and 
you know, for the purposes of the Bible study, I, I don't, I'm not going to get into complicated terminology like properly basic beliefs or warranted true beliefs or stuff like that. Um, but I just kept it simple in the Bible study and said, look, the, the Holy Spirit does attest to the truth of Jesus' resurrection to the Christian, the saved Christian spirit. And we know that the resurrection is true on that basis. And that alone is good enough. You don't need any objective evidence. That said, uh, having objective evidence provides double the warrant. It, it, it's better and it helps us uh, to have it. Um, okay, so hold on. But like I said, there's nothing that rules out having also having objective evidence in favor of the truth that Jesus rose from the dead as well. That helps us. We can present our case to Christians. It supports and buttresses our own our own faith and stuff like that. So, um, I mean, think of Jesus. He he gave objective evidence to the disciples. He appeared to their eyeballs. They had sense data. They could see Jesus. In the case of doubting Thomas, he could touch him and feel him and. You know, so uh, having the inner witness of the Holy Spirit isn't mutually exclusive or contradictory to having objective evidence. The two go hand in hand. Um, neither, it's not necessary to have objective evidence, but my goodness, it's nice to have it. And some people do need it to come to faith and God provides it. Okay. Um, so now I just ask, okay, well, what is apologetics? That's what the point of this. And obviously, you guys know on the podcast, but for those of the Bible study, apologetics is the branch of Christian theology, which provides rational justification for Christian truth claims. And it's grounded in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. The word defense is apologia. But that's apologetics. You're making a legal defense. You're presenting your reasons. For believing that the resurrection is true or that some christian doctrine is true the trinity is true whatever it is and we are commanded by in first peter three fifteen here to do that to be able to provide that upon demand with gentleness and respect um and there are three roles for apologetics so it, it helps serve to shape the culture it helps strengthen the christian believer and it helps to evangelize the unbeliever so this is very important um now, looking at the, the question of the evidence for the resurrection, obviously, methodology is important here. And we have the biblical scholar Walter Wink's quote here, he who brings with them their preconceived notions of what is possible to their studies will thereby diminish reality by the poverty of their own experience. And this is talking about bias, right? We need to eliminate bias as much as possible. We all have bi our biases, but through a proper method, we can mitigate against uh, the impact of our biases and hopefully arrive at truth. So when we're looking at historical events, there are at least three levels of critical analysis, right? So the first is we have to look at the historical sources being used and are they reliable or not? Or are, is a particular thing within it reliable or not? Um, what about who was the author? Stuff, you know, stuff like that. In biblical scholarship, you have source criticism, for example. Um, then we go into the analysis, analysis of the historical facts that can be established using those sources. And on this front, there, there are different approaches, right? There's the minimal facts approach of Gary Habermas. Then there's the maximal facts approach of people like Dr. Lydia McGrew. Um, and there's people like me or Caleb Jackson who adopt a moderate 
facts approach. And it's just referring to what's the number of facts we need that is necessary to establish the truth of the resurrection. And minimalists say, well, look, I can take five to six, with just five to six historical facts from the Gospels, I can prove the resurrection happened. Maximal facts say, no, we need to take everything in order to prove the resurrection. Finally, the next third and final analysis is the historical interpretation or conclusions reached on the basis of the facts. So this is where we submit historical hypotheses. You know, Jesus rose from the dead, the resurrection hypothesis. That's how we best interpret these facts. Or no, the disciples were all lying. It was a conspiracy or you know, they stole the body and they lied. That's another hypothesis or interpretation of certain facts, like the empty tomb and the appearances and stuff like that. Uh, we're just going to primarily focus on number two and three in this study. Okay, um, so cool. So I've got, um, for our first lecture here, before we look at the evidence in favor of Jesus' resurrection, it's important to understand what is Jesus' resurrection. What's the nature of our resurrection bodies and of Jesus's resurrection body? Because he's the first fruits. Um, so on that front, um, there's a non, the traditional claim is obviously Jesus died and rose bodily uh, from the dead on earth in the same identical body that he had before. It's a saying we are going to have a physical earthly body, much the same as we have before our deaths uh, in, in the resurrection. But there are some non-traditional scholars who claim different. Uh, so one of them is Dr. Richard Carrier. Um, and he's kind of, he's an atheist historian. Um, and he's a radical Jesus mythicist. Uh, he's kind of seen as a joke. And not a lot of people take him seriously in terms of his scholarship and opinions. Um, even And this is even among atheist biblical scholars and historians as well. Um, so he is very much the odd man out, but he will adopt the notion that Jesus is celestial or spiritual, had a spiritual body up in the heavens. Let's listen to Richard Carrier here, what he has to say about this. When I read the Bible 40 years ago, Paul, the first writer of Jesus, didn't seem to know he existed. Why isn't this exploited uh, well, of course, I think that's the strongest argument for the non-existence of Jesus. Now, Paul actually did believe Jesus existed. Uh, he thought he existed the same way Gabriel, Michael, and Satan existed as an archangel. He thought he was an actual archangel who actually was incarnated and actually was killed. But he thought, uh, or at least according to the alternative theory for the origins of Christianity, Paul thought that this all occurred in another realm. It did not occur on Galilee. It did not occur on Earth. And he was only known about it through secret messages sent by God through scriptures and through direct visions from Jesus. Uh, that's the alternative theory. When you read the epistles of Paul, it is weird that Paul does not know about a ministry for Christ, does not know about him being a miracle worker, does not know about him being an exorcist, does not know anything about parables being a method of teaching, uh, never quotes the Gospels, never quotes Jesus, except when he's quoting personal revelations that were given to him. Even by the way, relates a two-way conversation he had with Jesus, uh, a space Jesus, literally space Jesus, because he's up on uh, Mars or Venus or wherever, the third heaven, which is uh, literally another planet talking to Jesus. But anyway, um, that's in there. So we have him talking to space Jesus, but we don't, never have Paul talking about anyone ever having met or seen Jesus in life. The first time Paul ever mentions anyone seeing Jesus is after his death. Uh, and I talk about all of this in On the Historicity of Jesus, chapter 11, uh, the epistles of Paul are really the strongest argument for the non-existence of Jesus because here we have documents written, about 20,000 words written within two decades of the origin of the religion, and they're so bizarre 
from the assumption that Jesus was such a charismatic man that he caused this following. Um, you just don't see that in there. You see what you see is a celestial angel revealing himself to people in dreams and hallucinations. Um, so uh, to, to explore that further, you'd have to go to the book and, and read the literature that's in there. And everything. Okay, so that's Richard Carrier. And as you can see, yeah, he's got a radical theory whereby Jesus is um, up in the celestial third heavens, which is outer space for us, Mars and Venus. Literally, he was never on Earth. And he died and rose in this third heaven. So he rose with a spiritual body. He doesn't have an earthly physical body. That's the main point that Richard Carrier, that, that I want you to focus on, that Richard Carrier is making here. Uh, just forget about the rest of his uh, nonsense that's been falsified and is laughed at by everyone else in scholarship. The point is here, he's, he's teaching that Jesus has this spiritual or celestial type body. Okay, but he's an atheist. He's a radical Jesus mythicist. We can just dismiss anything he says, right? Well, unfortunately, even professing Christian biblical scholars like Dr. Dale Allison here, um, they also kind of teach that Jesus had a radically a spiritual body. His physical body was transformed into a spiritual non-flesh and blood body. So let's hear take a one-minute clip of him here. And my suspicion is what the Corinthians didn't didn't like was the notion that you know rotted bodies and, and bones and things like that were suddenly going to come come back and, and do something. I think Paul's trying to find a compromise here and his compromise is yeah there there's some sort of continuity here there is a, a, a seed uh, but it gets radically transformed. So I don't read Paul to be saying there's a physical body and you just get rid of it and then you get a new body, a replacement body. I actually think what Paul's trying to do here, whether successful or not, is argue that the thing that was buried somehow gets radically transformed into uh, something else. And I think uh, the Corinthians probably would have been happy with that because he's saying we're not talking about flesh and bones coming back and, and all the rest of it. We're talking about a radical transformation. I don't know this. Okay, so that's it for that clip there. Uh, so yeah, um, obviously we have this question then, right? Who is right? The traditional earthly physical body claim about Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection? Or is it these non-traditional claims by people like Dale Allison and Richard Carrier? Well, uh, in order to find out, we're going to look at a certain controversial text in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 44. And it says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Oops. What is this talk of this natural versus spiritual bodies? What are you talking about here, right? In the Greek, the natural body is natural is psychikos body. And spiritual, the Greek word is pneumaticos body. Why is there this distinction? Spiritual. This is a text that people like Dale Allison and Richard Carrier would use to prove their case that, yeah, with the body that, that rises is like a ghost. It's an ethereal, spiritual, um, non-physical body. Well, how would you respond to this? Well, uh, I've laid out four responses. There are more than this, but just four to keep things simple. Again, this is a Bible study, keeping it at a popular level. But the first is that Paul talks about bodily continuity, right? He gives the analogy of the seed and the plant in the preceding verses, whereby the seed is sown, the seed is buried, and the plant arises out from it. So this analogy presupposes the identity or continuity between the seed and the plant. And that, you know, that which you sow is the same as that which is made alive. The seed, representing the body, is what dies and goes into the ground. And it is that same body that rises out as the plant or the grain. Secondly, we also know that Paul's use of the word pneumaticos, body, spiritual body, doesn't refer to immaterial. They are not the same. The term used for spiritual is used by Paul 24 times in the New Testament, and it is always used in the sense of one's having a privileged understanding of reality. You know, you're, you're, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you're saved. You've, you, you know, you're, um, Jesus dwells in your heart, and that sort of thing. And we have lots of examples. Galatians 6, 1, someone is spiritually mature. In 1 Corinthians 2, 13, one can have spiritual wisdom. Or in Romans 7, 14, the law is said to be spiritual. Obviously, he's not envisioning a scroll of the Torah floating around like a ghost out in a field somewhere, right? That's not what he's talking about when he uses the word spiritual. In fact, Paul never uses the word to refer to something, this word spiritual, pneumaticos, to refer to anything ethereal or immaterial at all in the Bible. Um, and just want to play a clip by a traditional evangelical biblical scholar, Dr. Michael Kona, just to help make this point and hammer it home for you guys. So let's watch Michael Kona here. First of all, what was Paul's view of resurrection, since whatever his view of it was can be traced back to the apostles as well? What about, was he raised spiritually? Was he raised spiritually, not physically? Oops. And here, many scholars get 1 Corinthians 15 confused. Um, first of all, what was Paul's view of resurrection, since whatever his view of it was can be traced back to the apostles as well? What about, was he raised spiritually? Was he raised spiritually, not physically? And here, many scholars get 1 Corinthians 15 confused. Um, there's, he talks about how a body is sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. The two Greek terms that are used there for natural is psychikos, from which we get the term psuche, soul, for psychology. The other word is pneumatikos, from which we get the word spirit. So it's natural or, or soulish versus spiritual. Now, what do those terms mean? Well, I did a study when I was doing my doctoral research, and I found, I think it was 846 occurrences of the term psychikos 
in the extant Greek literature from the 8th century BC through the 3rd century, 1100 years. And you want to know how many times that that term meant something like physical as the uh, New Revised Standard Version, the Amplified Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, and a few other translations uh, incorrectly render it. They render it as it's sown a physical body, raised a spiritual body. Well, those 846 occurrences, not a single one of them mean physical. Not a single one in the ancient literature. What about spiritual? Well, it could mean ethereal, like an immaterial body, as Dennis wants to interpret it, it seems. But it can also mean spiritual in a, in a little different sense. Like, for example, in chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians 15, same letter, Paul says, the natural man, sukakas, doesn't understand the things of the spirit, for they are spiritually, pneumatikas, spiritually discerned. So he's not saying, contrasting the physical with the spiritual. He's saying people who are spiritually minded here. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, he's saying, look, the body that is sown, that's buried, is one that is natural insofar as it's animated by our, our typical organs, heart, kidneys, lungs, liver. But it's raised a spiritual body. It's one that's, that's animated by the Holy Spirit. Why do we say this? Well, number one, Paul had some other terms he could have used if he was trying to compare uh, physical with spiritual. He could have used sarkikos, which means physical, fleshly. Okay? But he doesn't use that. And he had already used those two terms in 1 Corinthians 9, just a few chapters earlier. So, so just a quick note. So sarkikos, that's another Greek word. But think of it. So it, it, that means flesh, or that refers to the physical in the sense that the skeptics are saying, right? Uh, think of it. Sarcophagus, sarcocus, right? Sarcophagus. It's a flesh box, flesh-eating box kind of thing that, that they refer to as the coffins and stuff like that. But I uh, just wanted to point that out. Uh, back to the clip. Let's finish off. So he already had those and used them in that sense. Paul believes in physical resurrection because uh, Romans 8.11, he said, the spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead will also, also give life to your mortal bodies. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, he says, look, I don't want you guys to grieve as those who have no hope. And then he talks about how Christ will um, bring back with him those who belong to Christ, the spirit of dead people who were followers and uh, who were saved, who had already died as followers of Jesus. And he says, then the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised first. Well, wait a minute, how are they going to be raised if they're already coming back with them? Well, it's pretty simple. He's bringing back the spirits back with him, and then they're reunited with their corpses, which are then resurrected and transformed into an immortal, glorious, powerful body that's animated by the Holy Spirit. It's a physical, bodily resurrection. It's not spiritual in a sense that Jesus was seen as an immaterial being. Well, what about... Uh, what about uh, chapter 15 when, when Paul says flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, but yet Luke says in Luke 24, Jesus says, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see that I have. This is a confusion of terms. As Joachim Jeremias said back, I think it was 1955, and he's not been refuted. And in fact, I looked up all the sources myself and found some additional ones. In all the ancient literature, whenever you see the term flesh and blood in ancient Jewish literature, it is always a Semitism that simply means the mortal body with all of its weaknesses. It's kind of like, 
hey, he's a cold-blooded murderer. That is a figure of speech. It's an idiom. It's not saying that his blood, if you took the temperature, is below 98.6. Flesh and blood was a semitism, a figure of speech. It did not literally mean something physical. Flesh and bone is not the same thing. So there's no contradiction there. All right. So that's what Mike Lacona had to say about this important topic. Um, cool. So you can see the way he, Paul uses the term spiritual does not equate to immaterial. Just because we hear it that way today, that's an anachronism. That's out of historical. That's not historically how the meaning of that word was interpreted back in Paul's day. Um, so you have to get that right. And you saw Mike Lacona, he said he, he looked at all the references to, the, to this word spiritual from 800 BC. That's the time of the prophet Isaiah, uh, or you know, a little bit earlier before the prophet of Isaiah, uh, 50 years before him all the way up to 300 AD, 300 years after Jesus, and not a single one ever meant the, meant ethereal or non or immaterial in this way. Um, okay, note there is, I did note one possible exception is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, uh, but that's debatable type thing. Okay, um, so there are also two other counters that you can give as a defense. So this third one is, look, there everyone has a, has a physical body. Um, I should have said physical rather than natural, right? But he says in verse 44, it is sown a natural body and it has raised a spiritual body. Well, common sense. What is the it? What is the it that has a natural body? Well, it's talking about your physical body. It's your physical body is sown natural, where natural means sinful, you know, has the sinful dispositions. Uh, you know, that's synonymous with flesh and blood, as Paul was saying, rather than flesh and bone. So you are a, have a flesh and bone physical body that's contaminated by sin. So it's flesh and blood, natural kind of thing. Whereas the spiritual body is now you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and you're holy. You have a holy physical body type deal uh, that's been raised from the dead. That's what's being said here. Finally and fourthly, the early church fathers agree with Paul's use here. And Ignatius of Antioch, for example, he talks about one being physical and spiritual simultaneously. So they're not contradictory. They're not talking about, oh, well, I have my physical body when I'm alive. When I'm resurrected, I'm going to be a spiritual ghost floating around. No, that's not how they understood that word spiritual. So, yeah, um, that's it for that part. The final section here are Dale Allison's doubts, right? So, so let's say for a second, okay, we do have this physical resurrection, spiritual resurrection body. How does that make sense, though? How how can how can there be continuity uh, if you know you have someone like uh, Wiley Coyote here getting blown up to smithereens? There aren't there aren't any molecules. He's totally obliterated. The body's totally annihilated. How could that body be? Uh, resurrected from the dead it doesn't exist it was gone it's gone it's been you know how would you respond to this well two responses so number one is to say continuity or identity is preserved through bodily transformation regardless of the individual molecules right so you can take this response this is how the ancient jews answered the question in jesus day they they would you know they had debates so how much of the body let has to remain for you to be resurrected and still be the same body and they kind of said well if, if the cossacks if the tailbone 
is left, that's enough. You, you can be raised. But anything less than the tailbone and you can't be raised, it, it's over for you. Um, well, they, they gave this, well, why, why should we assume an all or nothing dilemma? Yes, in Jesus' case, his body didn't have time to decompose or rot. So he was dead and then he rose whole, pretty much whole. Um, but um, yeah, Jesus, God can resurrect unique molecules, ex nihilo, and fill in the gaps. If you know part, if your part of your skeleton is there, that's enough. He can fill in the rest and stuff like that. And even in the case of total annihilation of everything, not a single trace or molecule exists. Again, God can make exact replica bodies and uh, ex nihilo create your DNA and stuff like that. There's no problem there. But then there's the second response, and this is the response I think is the best: is that look, we're, our identity is not preserved through our physical bodies; it's preserved through our souls. When our soul separates from our from our bodies at death, that same soul becomes embodied in a new body created ex nihilo by God. So all that matters is that the same soul becomes in, uh, leaves its body and then becomes embodied in another soul created of matter in the form of a human body at the time of the resurrection. That's all you need uh, to have that con bodily continuity envisioned by the Apostle Paul. And I have a clip by Dr. William Lane Craig answering this objection uh, in terms of the continuity versus what happens if your body's totally obliterated. Uh, so let's take a look at that clip. Dr. Craig, I had a question about the resurrection body as it might relate to the uh, mind-body problem. Oh. <laughs> I am a reluctant dualist. Yes. Um, and the resurrection, I think, ontology has always tripped me up. My question is, does a Christian, uh, be he a dualist or a materialist, need to affirm a physical continuity between the crucified corpse of Jesus and the resurrection body of Jesus? Or is there room in orthodoxy for physical discontinuity? Well, I wouldn't want to say that it's heretical, but I do think that when you examine what Paul teaches about the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15, it's very clear that he thinks that the resurrection body is a transformation of the earthly body so that there is historical continuity. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, verses 42 and following. He says, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Uh, and then he goes on to say, um, in verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. When this perishable shall have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So the verbs and the pronouns that Paul is using there have reference to the earthly body which is transformed into this powerful spiritual resurrection body. So I think that it's, it's pretty convincing that Paul teaches and believes in the historical continuity of the earthly body with the resurrection body. 
insofar as there are any remains, as there were in, in Jesus' case, of course. Now, in the case of someone whose remains have been utterly vaporized and, and destroyed, the early rabbis dealt with questions like that, because belief in the resurrection is, of course, a Jewish belief as well. And what they said would be, in cases like that, God had the ability to create new material, ex nihilo, uh, and, and that could be the stuff of the resurrection body. So that it, it, it is not as though the historical continuity from the earthly to the resurrection body is essential for the identity of the person who is raised. On the contrary, I would say that that personal identity is ensured by precisely the soul, which goes through an intermediate disembodied condition that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 until it receives the new resurrection body. And if there are remains, say skeletal remains of the earthly body, I think Paul believes these will be the stuff out of which the resurrection body is made. But if there are no remains left, then new matter can be created, and it will nevertheless still be the person who is raised who died because of the continuity of the soul through the disembodied condition into a newly embodied state. So I think your dualism solves the, any problem that you might have about identity. All right. <clears throat> All right. So that was William Lane Craig on that. Uh, so let me close that up and let me go back to my PowerPoint. So, yeah, you can see, look, as William Lane Craig says, it's the soul that preserves your identity and con talks of that's what the biblical continuity is between the seed and the plant, uh, as Paul gives in his analog analogy there in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and it's so long as the soul is becoming embodied in, in a matter in the form of a human body and it's becoming embodied. That's what the resurrection is. It doesn't have to be 100%. Every single molecule that you have at the moment of your death is somehow preserved, like you're in a cryogenic uh, storage bin or something at the moment, precise moment of your death. And, oh, you get resurrected in that exact same thing. That's not what Paul's saying here. Um, obviously, that's the norm. I mean, if, if you're, like in Jesus' case, that is what happened, right? His body died, and then three days later before it rotted or um withered away and stuff like that and, and uh, decomposed he rose in that so that's what will happen if it's available but it's not necessary it's not essential for the bodily resurrection to have continuity that you know you have to be raised in the same body like jesus was no if necessary if you're vaporized by a bomb god can resurrect uh, matter and create it ex nihilo in the form of your body and put your soul and embody it in it Okay, uh, so the last thing just to mention is, look, we don't just have our bodily resurrection, but things change. We have a glorious resurrection body. And so there's an improvement there, right? It's not going to be bound by the physical limitations uh, imposed by sin. You know, the sinful environment has impacts. We're not going to suffer from disease or old age and stuff like this in heaven. And uh, as Jesus is the first fruits, he gives us some interesting uh, aspects, right? He can appear and disappear. He can almost uh, walk through walls and stuff like that. So to what extent is that representative of what we're going to have? I, I think that we're going to have new capabilities in our glorious resurrection bodies that we don't have in this life. Uh, so I think that's what the Bible says there. Okay, cool. So that's it. Uh, next time I will be addressing 
the evidence that Jesus actually died by crucifixion and uh, the evidence for the burial and the empty tomb of Jesus. So, yeah, thank you for listening and have a uh, stop sharing. Have a great have a great week, everybody. Take care.